0: Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, Well, I want to welcome you to the final week of our series called The Day of the Lord. Uh, We spent three, and I will admit, rather sobering weeks, Uh, talking about things like how prone we are to defining good and evil for ourselves and the disastrous results of that kind of uh, evil. Uh, We've talked about collective human evil and the evil of Babylon and Egypt uh, and other empires throughout history up to the present day. Uh, How it's very easy for the oppressed to become the oppressors. And, and, and really, uh, I didn't know this, kind of planning the, the series, but it's all kind of taken a rather sobering tone as we've looked at these like really uh, difficult but necessary things to talk about and realities in our world. Uh, so I was, I was, as I was thinking about how to close the series, I was reminded that it's really time for good news. And how appropriate, too, because uh, we're going to be looking at the message of Jesus, uh, how Jesus steps into these realities and what Jesus has to say. Uh, And in fact, the very thing that we celebrate when we come together each week is the gospel, which literally means good news. Uh, And so how appropriate that we've spent kind of some time in the Old Testament looking at uh, these sobering realities, and now we allow Jesus to step into those and announce good news to us. Uh, I want to Recap just some really key ideas regarding the Day of the Lord, uh, and that is that we've discovered that the Day of the Lord is a phrase used throughout the Bible to uh, ref- refer to God's action to end oppressive human systems and establish His rule in the world. And while the Day of the Lord is a phrase that sometimes uh, we use to refer to the end, it is actually a theme throughout Scripture. Uh, there are multiple days of the Lord. Uh, the first day of the Lord. I was like, I wasn't sure what that was, but it was me. Uh, There we go. Uh, There are multiple days throughout scripture, uh, days of the Lord. The first day of the Lord was the Passover. Uh, when God churned the evil of Egypt on itself, freed his people from slavery and oppression. And then, of course, subsequent days also when God would come uh, and act on behalf of Israel to free them from th- certain threats. Now, eventually, the day of the Lord uh, came against them. This is what we looked, talked about last week. This, the day of the Lord came against Israel as they became just like Babylon. That once they were given a position of power, uh, given certain levels of wealth, then they began to oppress those who were uh, more vulnerable Uh, and so we talked about how the oppressed can often become oppressors Uh, and so just as they had become like babylon actual babylon conquers them and takes them into exile and so as a nation then as we read throughout the rest of the biblical narrative in the old testament as a nation israel lives under the rule of different empires until the time of jesus now this is really important and i want us to kind of understand this uh, that is, that as you read the Old Testament, you are reading the stories of oppressed people trying to make sense of the world and trying to make sense of who God is in the midst of that oppression. And so these stories are utterly and certainly inspired by God, but we also need to understand them for what they are, and that is, they are, they, the Old Testament is a diary of oppressed people. Now, what this means, ultimately, is that if you have never been under oppression, uh, there is a good chance that you will misread some of the scriptures, Uh, that we need to read it from the lens of people who are underfoot, Uh, that those who were most vulnerable in society were the first ones to grab hold of the good news of Jesus Christ, while all the people in power resisted this right? Do you make, does this make sense? <laughs> right? So, so in other words, if, if, um, if you've never been in a position of being oppressed, uh, it's really easy to misread scripture, particularly the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is the diary of an oppressed people trying to figure out wh- what is our place in the world, how do we make sense of the world, and how do we make sense of God's activity in it. Uh, that's a lot of what we read in the Old Testament. And it is the inspired word of God to lead us to the good news of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? Uh, so, so Jesus then is born uh, while Israel is under Roman rule or uh, the oppression of Rome. Uh, anticipation for the Messiah was, was running high. Uh, the Messiah needed to come and bring the day of the Lord upon Rome. Uh, In fact, it was the Messiah who would face the temptation, and I would say expectation. It was the Messiah who would face the expectation to destroy the Roman Empire with all of the typical weapons. This was what the Israel... The Israelite people wanted for the Messiah that was to come was to bring the day of the Lord once and for all upon Rome and end Roman oppression so that they might be on top once again and do it in all of the same conventional ways with all of the typical weapons. This was the messianic expectation. So temptation, in other words, the Messiah would face the temptation to defeat Rome in the same way that Rome had defeated Macedonia, who, and who had defeated Persia, who had defeated Babylon, and many hoped that the Messiah would set up a new kind of empire the same kind of empire the world had always known but now with God's approval. Okay? Are you with me? So, now many of you, when this series began, you probably thought, based on the title of the series, that we were going to be talking a lot about end times, and we will get to the final day of the Lord today, but in order to help us understand that, the final day of the Lord, uh, we need to back up and talk about how Jesus, the Messiah, confronts the evil of Rome, uh, because that is the framework by which we can begin to understand the final day of the Lord. What does Jesus do in order to confront the evil of Rome? And so, now, I'm going to give you like four what I'm calling stages, uh, but I want to admit up front that the life and ministry of Jesus did not happen in such clean and clear stages or categories. In other words, in real life, these were kind of all overlapping in real time but for clarity to help us understand, I wanna talk about how Jesus confronts the the evil of Rome in kind of four stages or four realities, okay? And there's a scripture for each, so we're gonna read those scriptures and um, go with our normal, this is the word of God for the people of God, and I would invite you to respond with thanks be to God. Uh, So the first stage um, is when Jesus conquers evil personally. Or when Jesus conquers a personal evil. It's found in Matthew chapter 4 uh, with the temptation of Jesus. uh, And I want to read verses 1 through 11. So Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 says this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now after 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry. And the tempter came and said, if you are the Son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. "'Jesus answered, "'It is written, "'Man does not live on bread alone, "'but on every word that comes from the mouth of God.' "'Then the devil took him to the holy city "'and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. "'If you are the Son of God,' he said, "'then throw yourself down, for it is written, "'He will command his angels concerning you. "'They will lift up their hands "'so that they will not strike your foot against a stone.'" Jesus answered him is it is also written do not put the Lord your God to the test so again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor all this I will give to you he said if you will only bow down and worship me Jesus said away from me Satan for it is written worship the Lord your God and serve him only and then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, we could do a whole series of messages on this scene in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. It's rich with all kinds of layers of meaning and all of that, but let's kind of fly at 10,000 feet this morning so that you're not here all afternoon. Uh, but, so what I want to say is simply this, that while all of the temptations have their own nuance, All of the temptations are for Jesus to exploit his power in the name of self-interest. All of the temptations have as a common foundation that Jesus would exploit his power as Messiah for the purpose of his own exaltation or for his own self-interest. And we need to know that because exploiting power for self-interest is exactly what empires have been doing all along. And so Jesus is in many ways facing the exact same temptation that Adam and Eve faced in the garden, which is to redefine good and evil for on their own terms, for their own benefit. But we need to know that the beauty of this story lies in the reality that Jesus refuses to do this. So again, uh, the temptation or the expectation is that Jesus would bring freedom from Roman oppression by building an army, using his power, and then using his power to conquer them. But Jesus refuses to do this because he saw that the real enemy was not the people or the communities themselves, but the real enemy was the evil power or influence that got people to define good and evil for themselves in the first place. Okay? And this is really, really important because all along, beginning in the garden, we have this, this what we call the fall of man or the original sin, that Adam and Eve define good and evil on their own terms so that what they, so what they can call what is evil, good, as long as it benefits them, then that comes to a fruition in Babylon, it gets a... A big ugly head in Egypt and all along this is sort of the sin of empire defining good and evil on our own terms so that what is actually evil we can call good as long as it benefits us and the the temptation then is anytime come someone comes against our own self-interest we are very quick to say they are the enemy What Jesus does is in his temptation, he faces the exact same temptation, but recognizes the real enemy is the animating power of evil behind those folks. So it's not the people or the communities themselves, but it's the evil that animates them. Have you ever been in a situation where someone who you knew to be good and trustworthy and all of these things did something totally unexpected, what you would call out of character. And then the temptation is to immediately demonize that person because of what they did. When in fact, they might have just been in that moment participating or animated by this evil, to defi- this, this evil of defining good and evil on our own terms. Does this make sense? And so, what the temptation for us we often face is we're so quick to demonize people, and Jesus wants to say the real enemy is something much more substantive and much more harder to defeat. Okay? So, it's really important who the real enemy is. Jesus, in other words, was unwilling to launch a military attack against Rome because he realized that Rome itself wasn't the real enemy, they were the embodiment of the evil of Babylon, or the evil of defining good and evil for ourselves. And so, many times, again, we demonize a person or a group of people because they hurt us, they did something evil, or they pose a threat to our own comfort. But Jesus doesn't do this. He is quick to identify the real enemy. Um, I remember being in a situation where I, I, I was just at odds with people and i was trying to make sense of the whole thing and i didn't know i i just could not for the life of me figure out what was going on and in counseling right in therapy (laughs) my therapist said we need to recognize that there are some things that you did and said that were animated by the enemy that were doing the will of the enemy there are some things that they did and said that were animated and doing the will of the enemy And so let's just recognize that and not demonize one another. And that was really, really helpful. And as soon as I got that lens, I began to see that in Scripture over and over and over again. Paul says this. He says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. That it's, that it's not the people themselves that we should so quickly demonize, but rather the, the real evil. So, so Jesus identifies the real enemy, the real enemy tempts him in the same sorts of ways, and Jesus refuses. In other words, in the wilderness, Jesus is tempted by the same evil that has been animating empires and oppressors all along, but he refuses, and in his refusal, he wins a personal victory over evil. Amen? Amen? That's good news. We need a Messiah who can resist the evil that we are prone to, right? Right? Okay, so then the second stage is is Jesus then announces the good news of his kingdom. Matthew chapter 4, so same chapter, just later on in verse 14, this is immediately following his temptation. Immediately following, and let's not call it the temptation. This is immediately following Jesus' victory over evil right? And guess what he does? Just a few verses later, in verse 17, it says this, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. And what did he preach? He, repeat, he preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, when I first read this many years ago as a kid, I always thought that it meant that, that, that um, the time of heaven is somewhere out there. It's, it's, it's close, it's almost at hand, but it's not yet here. But what Jesus is actually saying is the kingdom of heaven has come near to you. In other words, it is here, right here, and right now. Uh, And so the the response then is to repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so immediately following Uh, a personal victory over evil, Jesus launches his kingdom ministry, his kingdom mission, which will then confront evil in other people, both personally and corporately. So Jesus, having defeated evil on a personal level, is now going to launch his kingdom mission to start addressing evil on a personal level and on a corporate level as he sees it in other people. And I would submit to you today that Jesus' entire ministry is either a proclamation of or a demonstration of the kingdom of God, that his ministry is 100% focused on establishing his own kingdom rule in the world. And so, while proclaiming the reality of his kingdom, Jesus personally confronts some of the consequences of evil by forgiving sinners, giving voice to the oppressed, caring for the poor, healing diseases, and on and on and on it goes. And all of this is evidence that Jesus is setting people free from the oppression of the real enemy, which is the evil, okay? And so when you think about like what is, like was Jesus performing miracles because he wanted to show off? The answer to that is no. (laughs) All of Jesus' miracles are pointing us to a greater and larger and bigger reality that he's trying to teach us about what it looks like when, the, when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus isn't just performing miracles because he wants to or he's trying to show off or doing different things. Almost all of them are some sort of embodiment or proclamation of this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what the kingdom looks like. It looks like hungry people who are fed. It looks like when there's a mindset of scarcity moving to a mindset of abundance. It's all of these kinds of things that Jesus is, is not just proclaiming with his mouth, but he's embodying and demonstrating through his actions. All of his, all of his miracles have a particular purpose. And so I want us to, when we break it down this way, it becomes like really clear. Jesus defeats evil on a personal level. He starts to confront evil in other people. I'm going to heal your disease. You're lost in sin. I will offer you forgiveness, which is like a scandalous brand new thing, right? And he gets into a lot of trouble for for offering forgiveness, right? The Pharisees are like, wait, you can't do that because we have all sorts of laws that allow us to control people as long as there's no forgiveness, But if there's forgiveness, then our whole system of controlling people comes crumbling down, right? So the Pharisees are rather upset about Jesus' proclamation of the forgiveness of sinners. And so he's doing all of this kind of stuff. Well, then, of course, we get to uh, the cross, which is uh, found in Luke chapter 23, 32 through 34 is what I want to read. But then Jesus, but here's the thing, here's what we need to realize. Jesus' kingdom ministry is limited. It's limited because Jesus can only do those things for the ones that he is around and in that period of history, right? So this is a limited ministry. The kingdom ministry of Jesus in in actual space-time is limited to the people that he is with in the moment and to the people uh, to to that particular time, right? Because Jesus isn't physically walking with us here now he offers us his spirit and that's what that's what we're celebrating uh is that he does what is necessary to expand his his ministry of defeating evil and he does it through the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and pentecost the pouring out of his spirit this is all in an effort to continue his kingdom ministry that was limited for as long as he was physically walking the earth are you with me so So Jesus conquers evil and death by letting evil conquer him at the crucifixion. That's the third stage. And this is uh, Luke chapter 23, 32 through 34, says this. Now, two other men, both criminals, were led out with him to be executed. And when they came to a place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You see, on the cross, God in flesh bears the brunt of evil upon himself. Jesus knows uh, that crosses and swords and soldiers aren't the strongest forces in the world. What Jesus knows is that as long as evil is met with evil or violence is met with violence or betrayal is met with betrayal or oppression with further oppression, then it can never be defeated. But rather, he takes evil upon himself and he responds with forgiveness. And this, this should remind us a little bit of our forgiveness series early on in the year. That what forgiveness does is it ends the cycle of revenge in our lives. That the only way to end the cycle of violence and revenge and oppression is with forgiveness. Because as long as you meet evil with evil, it often is fueled. But in so doing, in dying on the cross, Jesus reveals evil's true ugliness. In other words, when Jesus is dying on a cross, he's basically holding a mirror up to the ugliness of the Roman Empire and saying this is so evil that it would crucify an innocent man. This, he, he's holding a mirror to the evil that's being perpetrated upon him. And so he, he, that's, what, that's what's happening on the cross. And so what he's showing is that self-interest can run so amok that we become capable of killing God. This isn't kind of like some sort of punitive God is punishing somebody. There's, there's much more depth happening here at the cross. That, that God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, is holding a mirror up to evil as he takes the brunt of evil upon himself. And guess what? He does this during the annual Passover celebration. Remember two weeks ago when we talked about at the Passover What what God does is he turns evil upon itself to free his people from slavery and oppression. And then every year they call that the day of the Lord and they celebrate with a big Passover celebration year after year after year, after generation after generation after generation. And so now the time has come, we're under Roman oppression, we're here to celebrate the time when God took our ancestors out of Egypt and he rescued us from slavery and oppression and we're here doing all of this. And in that same weekend, that same celebration, what Jesus does is he comes and he takes the brunt of evil. He becomes the sacrificial lamb. He does this during the Passover celebration, the time of year when Israel remembers how God freed them from oppression and evil by turning evil upon itself. And what Jesus is doing is making a very clear statement that through his own death and resurrection, you are now freed from the real enemy. The victim becomes the victor. It's a beautiful thing that God has done. And what we need to recognize as the people of God is that the victory has already been won on the cross. That God has defeated evil in principle and he is now working to defeat it in reality through the final day of the Lord. And what we have the opportunity to do is participate with him in that kingdom work. To be able to say, what is it that will be abolished? What is it that will stay? How do we promote those things? How do we uh, work against those things? How do we begin to discern n- the world not through the eyes of empire, but rather through the eyes of kingdom? How do we begin to see the world not as it certainly is? And we need to grapple with those realities, but we need to look at, we need to grapple with those realities in light of the world that is to come. We we are to be people of the future, (laughs) and so finally, the stage four, the final day of the Lord comes. So here we talk about Revelation, and I know uh, everyone loves to talk about Revelation. (laughs) So let's talk about it. Uh, When it comes to Revelation, our images of the day of the Lord come mostly from Revelation chapter nineteen. Uh, But the book, if you read it, has worked really hard to make sure that you understand the images of Revelation 19 before you ever get there. Uh, So if you read just kind of Revelation 19 and then you take it at face value, you will be left with all sorts of assumptions that may or may not be true because the book itself has worked really hard to give you images to help you understand Revelation 19. So what I want to submit to you this morning in, in a really, really brief overview of this final day of the Lord, uh, is that Revelation, what I want to submit to you is that what Revelation reveals is Jesus' final victory comes by way of the cross and resurrection. Uh, there's lots of violent imagery, but that isn't because we have to look forward to all, all kinds of big wars, that, but God is on our side and he has the biggest machine gun, yay, Right? Like, that's not at all what Revelation is doing. So, I submit that what Revelation reveals is Jesus' final victory comes by way of the cross and the resurrection. Um, So, in this brilliant book, uh, but often misunderstood biblical book, Uh, Jesus is portrayed as the victorious one. As you read the book of Revelation, that's what's clear over and over and over again is Jesus is the victorious one. What is surprising is the images that are portrayed or or the images that are given to portray him as the victorious one. So uh, in Revelation chapter five, uh, verses five through six, let's read that. Revelation five, verses five through six says this. Uh, then, now this is uh, looking to see who is worthy to open up these scrolls. Uh, It's a heavenly scene, uh, and we see this scroll, and then, oh, no one on all the earth is worthy to open the scrolls. Who's Who's worthy to open these? Verse five, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. For see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals, right? And so everyone's like, yeah, Jesus Christ, the lion, he's here, woo! That's just how I see it in my head. Um, and, then, and then verse six, the revelator, the one who's receiving this vision says, then I looked and I saw a lamb. Wait, where, what happened to the lion? Yeah, lion of Judah, ah. <laughs> That's right. Like, well, like what happened to the lion? Because when he looks, he sees a lamb. Then I saw a lamb. But then it gets worse, looking as if it had been slain. So he doesn't just see a lamb, he sees a slaughtered lamb standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. This becomes the centralizing image for Jesus in the book of Revelation. Early on, we're getting pumped up. Who's worthy to open up the seals? It is the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. And then I looked and I saw a slaughtered lamb. Now, the, the Greek for lamb is the diminutive term, literally meaning lambkin. It's the, it's the littlest, puniest form of lamb that you can get, and it's slaughtered. And what, what, in a brilliant move, what the writer of Revelation does is he makes this the centralizing image for victory in the book of Revelation. It is the victory that has been won through the slaughtered Passover lamb. That's the centralizing image. Isn't that wonderful? That's beautiful. That's good news, church. That's good news. As long as we believe that the cross was the victory of God. But if we still want all sorts of stuff to be worked out and for Jesus to kind of come in and kick some butt, then we're going to be disappointed in a little lamb who is slain. But if we recognize the the beauty of the cross and the power of the cross, then we will see victory through a slaughtered lamb as good news. Okay? Okay. So in Revelation chapter five, verses five through six, Jesus is announced as a victorious lion, but when John sees Jesus in his vision, he is a slaughtered lamb. And the imagery couldn't be more clear. Through his death during Passover, Jesus has become the Passover lamb. And then in Revelation chapter 19, and this is where the real action starts, right? Revelation chapter 19, let's read verses 11 through 21. Uh, 11 through 21, it says this. Uh, If you're in your Bibles, it says the rider on the white horse, okay? I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. And with justice, he judges and he makes war. The question we have to ask is how does he make war? And the text is gonna tell us. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head there are many crowns. He has his name written on him that no one knows uh, but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. If you're not clear about who we're talking about, by saying his name is the word of God is like the, the, it's like the giveaway clue, right? This is Jesus. And armies of heavens were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with an iron scepter and he treads on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Have you ever seen a a more, some of you will know what I mean by this. Have you ever seen a more B.A. version of Jesus in your life, right? I mean, this is like Jesus with a tattoo on his thigh, he's on a horse, he's got a sword. I mean, you're just like, whoa, what happened to, like, the shepherd, you know? Like, you're just kind of like, wonder, as you're reading this, you're like, what in the world happened, right? Alright, let's keep reading. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice with all the birds flying around in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God that we may eat the flesh of the kings and generals and mighty men. Men and horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. That's gross. And then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Right. So now, now Jesus has some competition. But the beast was captured before. But the but the beast was captured, and with him the false prophets who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. What happened to the battle? It was like as soon as they show up, they're captured. That's important. With these signs, he had deluded those who deceived the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. And the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed by the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider of the horse. And all the birds goaded themselves on the flesh. Now, just some good nighttime devotional reading right before you go to bed, just to calm your spirit, uh, Revelation 19. Now, this, uh, this passage is often used to talk about how God is going to return and kick some butt and uh, he does kick some butt, but just not in the way we often assume. You see, we assume the, the, the imagery communicates the means by which God will bring victory. Uh, when in fact, the imagery in Revelation uh, is meant to communicate the meaning of or the universality of God's victory. In other words, it doesn't communicate the means by which victory comes. All of this image is used to communicate uh, the universality of his, or the scope of his victory. you with me? Uh, Some of you are thinking, well, um, uh, my pastor has lost his rocker and he's just completely gone mad. Uh, And so uh, I want to read a portion of this book, this brilliant book, uh, uh, called Reading Revelation Responsibly by Michael Gorman. Uh, and this is what he has to say about this. And, and I was thinking, like, as I was writing the sermon, I was like, could, how, how can I explain this best? And what can I do? And then in the end, I just decided Michael Gorman says it better than I ever could. So, uh, so stick with me here. This is a little bit academic, but I think, I think we'll be able to get our hands on it. And uh, it'll also be up on the screen for you to follow along. So uh, it says this. Uh, Revelation should be understood as portraying symbolically what God does actually, with a divine performative utterance that is an effective word that is not unlike the word that spoke creation into existence it is a word of new creation revelation's symbolic language uses only the kinds of realities that are known to humans in order to approximate the universality and finality of god's final dealing with evil with me now this truth that the language of judgment in Revelation symbolizes God's effectively speaking evil into non-existence is perhaps most sharply represented by the vision of Jesus' victorious appearance as the word of God on the white horse with a sword out of his mouth, right? That's a really important thing. Like every, Revelation is all symbol, it's all symbolic. And so the, the sword, like what is it? Think about it, if we were to read this Literally, what is the practicality of Jesus trying to fight with a sword in his mouth? Right? If any of you have any kind of training, you know, this is not going to work. It's telling us something. And what, what, what this book offers is that Jesus speaks by his truth. Evil is held accountable and then, and then conquered from the world forever. So what this does is it signifies the effective word of God's judgment that is the wrath of God and the lamb needs no literal sword and which is what a literal sword could never accomplish. In other words, Jesus does with his word of truth and his word of judgment what a literal sword could never do. Moreover, this Jesus comes dressed in a robe dipped in blood, but it is his own blood because the battle has already been fought and won in his death. The judgment he executes is his word so that the effects of his saving death may be fully realized in God's work of renewal. Um, I am fearful that some of you at this point in the sermon are like, what difference does this make in my life today? Uh, and can I, just, can I just say that it's really, really important for us to get good theology in our minds and in our hearts that we need to understand who God is and what God is doing, and particularly what God is up to, because what we believe and how we think about the future has everything to do with how we live our lives today. Uh, And so I don't have three points of practical application. I just want to offer you this reading of Revelation and allow it to soak in our spirits along with the work of the Holy Spirit to move us into how we might respond today. Because here's what Michael Gorman goes on to say. He says, Uh, Yes, the slaughtered lamb fights for God and will act on behalf of God to rid the world of evil, but he does so with, uh, with only his own blood and a sword in his mouth, not with a sword in his hand to literally shed the blood of his enemies. And then he says this, the integrity and the witness of the church depends in part on realizing this truth. The integrity and the witness of the church depends in part on the realizing this truth. The war of the Lamb is not what humans have been fighting all of these centuries. But the war of the Lamb is fundamentally and totally different. What Jesus does through his life, through his ministry through his death and resurrection, and through his return, as he calls to account the real evil in the world. And what I want to submit to you today, church, is that this is a word of tremendous good news. Um... I said this a couple weeks ago, I'll say it again. Does anyone throughout the week, like from Sunday to Sunday, just feel like the world is about to unravel? Am I the only one? I mean, it just feels like things are, are going bananas, right? The political divide is deeper than it's ever been. It, it's just, it feels like something has got to give. It, it, just, it really does. And in those moments, I, it is very, very easy for me to be absolutely hopeless, and maybe the only thing that gives me rest is the reality the into empires and political divides and laws that people disagree over this is the exact world that jesus entered into jesus entered into our mess and he proclaimed this message of good news. And he said, he embodies this reality that he is a Messiah who is not prone and who can overcome the temptation of falling into the same sorts of evils that you and I do over and over and over again. And Jesus says, I have defeated all of that. I'm going to call it out in you. I'm going to establish a kingdom and I'm going to return to make my work that is already final, complete and realized in the world. And I just want to say, thanks be to God. Because we need somebody. (laughs) We need a Messiah, right? I mean, things are absolutely out of control. And so I'm just reminded today, and I I don't know if this resonates with you at all, but I'm just reminded today that this encourages us with hope. But there's also a sense in which it, it motivates me to action. It motivates me to work it motivates me to be able to look at the world with discerning eyes and be able to say, how is God at work? And I don't have all the easy answers, but I got a lot of hard questions. And with those hard questions, I'm gonna continue pressing in to the good news of Jesus Christ in his kingdom, amen? And, And guess what? The more we press into the truth and the beauty and the reality of the kingdom of Christ, the more questions we'll have. There's been a long-standing, uh, long-standing kind of falsehood is that the more you get to know Jesus, just the more answers you have and the more hunky-dory life becomes. And that is not true. The more you take Jesus seriously, the more you have questions. The more you realize that what Jesus was doing was not so much talking about individual people and how to get them into an individual heaven after they die, but was coming to announce the establishment of his kingdom on earth as in heaven you'll get more questions and then you keep pressing and you get more good news and you get more good news and you get more good news and what happens is you start to well up with this thing called hope for the world not just hope for me. There is hope for me and there is hope for you. Can I also say today, in the good news of Jesus' announcement, there is hope for the world? The prophet Isaiah uses this term. He says, I want to be a prisoner of hope. I think that's pretty cool, and I'm going to steal it. (laughs) And I want to call all of us to be prisoners of hope, not just for ourselves. And our own salvation. Yes, that is important. But also for the world. Because Jesus' announcement of the kingdom was not just for us. It was, in fact, for the world. I have preached long enough. (laughs) So I need to move us on. But I pray that you will receive this word. Uh, I I pray that we will uh, receive this series and the truths and the uh, realities spoken in this series many of them sobering and uh, can, can be lacking in any in, in immediate hope. But let us land here in the good news of Jesus Christ for the world. Amen.